welcome to another episode of the Being and Doing podcast, where I try to explore unique minds that are all around us in hope of illuminating new parts of reality that we all inhabit. And today, it's a great pleasure to have a returning guest, Dr. Lou Cozzolino, a true poet scientist and an inexhaustible source of wisdom in the field of psychotherapy. So welcome, Lou. Thank you. Nice to be with you again. I will not have another introduction because we have already done a podcast, but I'm really excited to to have the opportunity to explore uh, the vast ocean of knowledge in the field of psychotherapy with you. And uh, hopefully this will become a series of encounters. And today we talk about um, trauma. So one of my favorite topics, and I am now curious to start with just defining trauma. What is it that we consider to be trauma? That big word. Well, I mean, you know, probably the most important thing or the first thing to say is that it's incredibly complex and it doesn't, it doesn't really give into any sort of quick definitions. But I think uh, given that I think of, of, tr- of trauma and many things from, from a perspective of, of how the brain function, um, I would say that it's, uh, you know, Freud, Freud talked about trauma resulting when there's a surpassing of the stimulus barrier. That was Freud's term. And for decades, I, would, I had no clue what he was talking about. What is the stimulus barrier? All I could think of was the blood-brain barrier, and it's certainly not related to that. And um, but over the, you know, the if you think about something for twenty or thirty years, sometimes you come up with an idea. And um, I, I really think that the way I would define trauma, connected to that notion of surpassing the stimulus barrier, is that it's a level of stress that reaches a level of intensity that actually um, subverts the normal functioning of the brain at the level of biochemistry, at the level of neurodynamics, in other words, the ability of different brain networks to communicate uh, with each other and work together. Um, I think from a, from a psychological perspective, it results in many ways, a, 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 almost like a petrification of emotion and um, a narrowing of cognition. And um, it also, results in difficulty in connecting to the group mind and being connected with other people. And of course, you can keep going up the ladder to the to the spiritual and the, you know, the, the, the more complex social aspects. But I would think at the very core, I would think it's a, it's um, and this is different for everyone, but a, a stress that actually inhibits our the way our brains normally function. And if this happens to in childhood, then it becomes woven into how our brains develop. And so our brains then, uh, how can I say this? I mean, they adapt to the trauma and then they develop, you know, as a reflection or in resonance with that trauma going forward. So, so there are many avenues that I would like to explore from here. One is connected to the stimulus and to trauma being a very individual and, uh, event. 
Um, do you know something about the susceptibility of the nervous system to trauma? And when people say, don't be overly sensitive, uh, what does that mean in terms of individual difference and what we consider a trauma for one person might not be a trauma for another? Mm -hmm. Well, I think if you, there's a, there is a spectrum of autonomic sensitivity. There are differences in threshold for autonomic arousal during, you know, so there is that genetic, there, there's sort of a, a template genetic sort of variable there. And then during gestation and early in life before perhaps you're even exposed to any trauma, your brain is getting built epigenetically to be, to have a, a higher or lower threshold of arousal. And it's also set up either in a positive or negative way of being able to auto-regulate. So these things are much too complicated for, for us to understand. In other words, we can't really predict these things going forward for any individual, but there are multiple variables that come together that make people either hypersensitive or hyposensitive. And then somewhere in the middle of those things, we tend to think of those people as normal but it really isn't normal, abnormal. It really is just an expression of biodiversity that exists on this, you know, on this continuum. And then as we grow, there are things that will happen to us, like there will be frightening or traumatic events on the one hand, or there will be deficits in attachment or attunement or, you know, nurturance or, uh, you know, environmental variables that are either positive or negative that continue to shape how, our, how um, resilient our brains are to stress or how vulnerable they are to stress. And so that's why, you know, even when you, you know, the, I, I can't even really, I, I threw my DSM away because I found it more problematic than it was helpful, right? Because what it does is even if, even if some of the things in it are correct, just the fact that you're looking up things categorically in these very simplistic ways, um, it, it to me is more trouble. It's more trouble than it's helpful. So I would lean on that DSM thing because I am someone who has not uh, been in, inundated in, in that kind of thinking. Although I am a scientist and I like to categorize, but I also very, uh, am very much aware of the continuum. So I'm curious, is it uh, for a developing therapist, for example, is it important to have that baseline and then develop a continuum or have them somehow in, in a way integrated? And how did you integrate it for yourself? Well, it's hard to know what the best way to do it is. I mean, I know, I know therapists and I actually supervise therapists who were trained in, um, not in the US, but in other areas where they were thrown into the deep end of the pool and they worked with very difficult clients and difficult families for years and years, but they weren't required to give a diagnosis. And then they get very resistant to giving a diagnosis because it feels too reductionistic to them. Mm -hmm. And also it's sort of, that's what the real doctors do. And so there's also this self-esteem thing going on, right? Um, I don't know if there's a right way or a wrong way with that. But I, I guess from from the training that I've gone through and how most training is in the US, 
is I, I think of it sort of like playing an instrument, like learn, you learn how to play, um, you know, classical music and then move to jazz. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the same thing, like learn the DSM so then you can get rid of it. But you've got these categories in your head to know what the shared constructs are in the in the field, because some people do fit into them. Yeah. Right. Like I, I was trained to do um, one of the many ways I was trained to deal with uh, trauma was somatic desensitization from a cognitive behavioral perspective. And I after 40 years of practice or whatever, um, I, I did have one client where it worked. Right. <laughs> but for, you know, and, and she was someone who was high functioning. She came from London to L.A. She had a car accident. She had symptoms that were in the DSM. She otherwise high functioning. I did systematic desensitization with her 10 sessions and she was better. Right. And so but that's the only client I've had in the, in the 35 or 40 years that was that simple. Usually when someone comes in with trauma, um, what it does is just opens a door to the previous trauma and the previous trauma before that and to the family system and to underlying, you know, other sorts of underlying genetic biological processes. And so um, I think my real problem with it, with how trauma is like the whole trauma informed thing is that there's a set of information that if you have it, you're trauma informed. But I don't I don't believe, you know, it's it's yeah, I just don't believe it. <laughs> I believe people can read a pamphlet or take a weekend seminar, but I really don't know. I don't quite understand what that is. So so let's talk about the trauma informed uh, uh, sentence. So in your book, why do we need actually something to be trauma informed when most of the time trauma is the underlying um the underlying cause of the behavior or of the behavior that's presented to us um and so where is that coming from and why do we now suddenly don't recognize trauma as being an underlying underpinning the behavior well, I'd, I'd have to think about that more carefully. I don't know if I agree with you that everything is the underlying is, you know, yeah. everything is sort of driven by trauma. If you use trauma in, in, in an incredibly broad sense, um, think about maybe maybe in, in like from the perspective of Winnicott or Kohut, think in terms of impingements, mm -hmm. right? There's that word that's used where there's a challenge to a child's sense of stability or regulation because the mother's absent, the father's absent, there's, you know, uh, chaos or loud voices or whatever's going on. Um, if you say impingements, excuse me, are, um, if you call those things trauma, then I can move a little bit over onto your side with that. Um, but there are, you know, there are, um, I've had many clients over the years who have bipolar, schizophrenic processes, other sorts of, of genetic and um, sort of developmental problems that I don't think are that that based in trauma. Of course, if you've got those problems, you end up experiencing trauma. Like if you grow up with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, etc., you're going to have trauma on top of it. But I wouldn't say that trauma is the is the as at the core of the etiology. Yeah, I mean, now thinking about it, I guess 
there would be this absolute distinctions with the inherited diseases which are not trauma-based yeah. so yeah that that will make sense and and then talking about trauma um sometimes the way trauma is presented uh is normalized in society as just being normal behavior and yet it's for example trauma language uh, that we use um so i'm curious um Sometimes, the, sometimes how we normalize trauma can actually prevent us from, from reaching out for help. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, um, what do you think we can do um, in, in helping people understanding what trauma language in themselves is? Well, I think what, you know, what, what I think happens in therapy is that people come in very often and they describe their lives like their ch child abuse or um you know a, a parental loss you name it and it's so normalized because it's the, that's the only life they've ever had mm -hmm. right so there there's basically interacting with someone and asking questions about it and even sometimes just you as a therapist showing a client the reaction you're having to the story they're telling They'll be surprised that you're sad or that you get a tear in your eye when they're talking about what's gone on with them. And then they, you know, if it doesn't frighten them and they and they run out of they run away from therapy, they'll be curious about that. And they'll, you know, they'd say things like, well, it never occurred to me to think that was unusual. That was just what I, you know, that was just my childhood. And um and a lot and also there's a lot of sort of cultural normalization in other words um like families uh, who i've worked with who are black african-american or irish families and there's there's sort of uh harsh corporal discipline or child abuse and they'll just say well that's just being irish or that's just being black and it's um you know it's a little confusing because we have all of this political correctness and there's all of this kind of uh, insanity around, around, you know, everybody saying the wrong thing all the time now. But I think the truth of the matter is it's like, it's part of our job as a therapist to say, well, you know, it might be something that's common, you know, where, where you grew up in common in your culture, your family, but we don't necessarily have to assume it didn't have a negative impact on you, right? Because it's much, it would be, if you think about the symptoms you're presenting with, right, and that which you say you don't know where they're coming from, and then we look at the types of things you had to survive growing up, it could be that there's a causal relationship. And then what you run into next with clients is, well, if it has to do with their family, they um, are very protective of their parents. And they say, you know, and so there's all of the mythology that people come out of their childhoods with. And so that's just being a therapist. You have to sort of go over and over and over those things and circle around and circle around. But between sessions, clients go away and think about things or mull on things. And then often they'll come back two or three or four weeks later. And now they've just thought of something. Maybe it was my maybe it's the way I was treated that's related to this. They're not even able sometimes to say, well, this is something you said. They have to, in a sense, discover it on their own, and they'll dissociate the fact that you even mentioned it. So there's just a lot of interesting processes that 
you know, that go on a lot of loyalties. There's a, there's a wonderful book. Um, if, if, uh, you haven't read it called invisible loyalties no. by a fellow named, um, I don't remember his first name and I don't even know what country he's from. I guess his name is Borzemengi Naj, N-A-G-Y. And um, it's called Invisible Loyalties. And it was one of the most influential books that I read in therapy. And it also helped me in my in social neuroscience, realizing when, when I was reading, you know, Bowen and other biologists that we are woven together into these organisms called families and cultures and all and that we affect each other's internal worlds and that we share mythology and all of these things. So when you're working, when you're working with a client in therapy, you've got the whole family in there and you've got the whole culture in there. And unfortunately, you also have your family in there and your culture. So it gets really crowded yeah. in the therapy room. I have to say, wherever I go now, I always mention this, what you're saying. There's never only two people in the therapy room. <laughs> so... Um, and, and also talking about the, the normalization and basically also all the layers uh, of defense that we are creating. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, basically, how much also just being immersed in a certain, you mentioned culture or, or race or belonging, for example, I know Eastern European way of thinking being tough or, or things like this. Um, how much, uh, in a way, how do we escape the collective unconscious? Um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I know. Uh, <laughs> the reason I'm asking this, because I, I, I always kind of think, oh, I moved out of my country and suddenly I, I saw what the collective unconscious is. And then I moved of another, out of another country. Then I suddenly, I saw another layer. But then I'm thinking, do I have to leave the earth in order to, in order to uh, kind of peel more and more layers of, of, of so, so in a way, I'm always curious, how do we make those breakthroughs uh, in our current collective narrative? in global collective narrative? Well, I mean, leaving the earth may be helpful. <laughs> um, maybe not practical, but it might be helpful. I remember uh, from my student days that one of my professors said that philosophy, philosophy is born in, in port cities. You know, it's like where people are, where you keep running into people who don't share any of your assumptions yet they're doing just fine with all of the without all of the things that you think are necessary for for existence and survival and so i think it just we are i i, I don't think we're capable of not being embedded anywhere those of us that move across cultures feel kind of homeless you know i think because we start seeing the places we're embedded, we start getting an objective perspective on them. And so we lose that sort of safety of, of subjective merger with the culture. Because it's so much safer just to assume that, you know, when I was a kid, everyone was Italian. You know, I just assume, you know, white people, black people, everybody was Italian, right? And it was as I grew up, I said, oh, not everybody is Italian, you know? 
And it was, um, so you get from that very egocentric perspective, which feels very safe. It's sort of ego gratifying. You're the center of the universe. And then the more you meet people and the more you travel, the more you feel more like a little speck, you know, walking like an ant walking on the planet. So um, I understand why a lot of people don't want to leave home because you, you lose that sense of certainty you have, right? But to go back to your question, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that's probably as best we can do because I think if we went, you know, if we got in a spaceship and we went to the moon and you and I were doing this on the moon, we probably would just be confused and disoriented and then we'd have to create our own culture. But then we would create all sorts of things that our children would have to go to therapy to get over. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just life. That's that's very, very true. I'm, I'm starting to realize that and touch yeah. that point. Yeah, so we should all, the minute we think of having children, we should start saving for therapy for them. Yes. Forget <laughs> college, start saving for therapy. <laughs> that's that's what i am always thinking because we we might not even just be a match with our children and that's it <laughs> that's trauma in itself <laughs> right um and you mentioned briefly in the first description of trauma that that there are traumatic events that can happen during the lifetime and then uh, there are uh, traumas that happen during the development so uh how do these diff these traumas present and do they sometimes present differently or they can have very similar consequences hmm. can you can you help me a little bit can you narrow that question down so let's say um would you uh so would the developmental trauma uh present in terms of system uh, symptoms similarly to a trauma that would happen such a car crash um, so do developmental and let's say PTSD kind of symptoms can present similarly or developmental trauma is much more layered and complex? Well, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge and complicated question in itself, but just I mean, think about sort of the basic, a basic core, uh, core principle of trauma or, or of, you know, of arousal is is having a very low threshold for amygdala activation and amygdala you know and then if when the amygdala becomes activated it create it, it uh, you know triggers the secretion of adrenaline and cortisol it raises dopamine it decreases serotonin levels so all of those things are sort of just physiologically seems to be wired for most of us um connected to amygdala activation so we're really talking about the threshold of firing, right? So if you think developmentally, if you think about um, the mother's experience during pregnancy, which gets translated to the fetus, you know, uh, during gestation, or the quality of, of nurturance and attachment, some of the things that are happening is that the more anxious the mother is during pregnancy, the mother is preparing the child to come into a more dangerous world. The fetus doesn't know whether the, the mother is living in a combat zone, right? Or whether the mother is just highly neurotic and frightened of everything and she lives in a safe environment. All the fetus knows is what she's learning from her mother during, during gestation. So there is more adrenaline, there's more adrenaline, there's more cortisol, the hippocampus develops less robustly, 
the amygdala grows larger and gets more active. Um, epigenetically, there are less benzoreceptors that get built on the, on, the, um, on the amygdala. There are less cortisol receptors on the hippocampus. So during gestation, then, you have these epigenetic processes that are creating a brain that's prepared to live in a dangerous environment. So then if the child is born into the environment, and in fact it is dangerous, those epigenetic processes will continue, right? So by the time they're, say, 12 or 15 years old, they might have an exaggerated startle response because, in a sense, their brain has been built to react in that way. So you take, uh, you know, another girl who's going in the same class as they are, who has a car accident, she might now have an exaggerated starter response that comes from that traumatic experience. So superficially, they might look pretty much the same, right? And what will happen, I suppose, is that the, the child that's developed in that way will have more a more entrenched sort of uh, complex system that keeps that going, right? The child that was traumatized, if they get helped as, you know, sooner rather than later, to process that trauma and get back to baseline, they will probably decrease their exaggerated starter response in relatively short order, you know, a few weeks or a few months or something like that. And so at any given point in time, the symptom pro uh, profile might look the same, but how they got there and what the uh, projection for the future is are going to be different. So there I also have another question. Um, I listened to um, a lady who had complex uh, PTSD and developmental trauma, and she mentions uh, it's a feeling that there was no before. So some people that would have an accident where it's a time, a point in time, but they know that before they were well, they were well attached, they, they had loving families. Um, they know that there is something to go back to. And therefore, there's kind of more hope uh, that things will get better. Um, and when there is this complex um, uh, trauma, um, there is no before. So I'm wondering, as a therapist, how do you help people um, to have hope, but not the kind of hope that is fleeting and impossible to reach, but to know that, yes, there is a ground that we can reach together. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that is, um, that's a process that's a, a part of probably creating or helping a client create a heroic narrative for themselves, where they see themselves in a timeline, where they see a present and a future and a past as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then, it's more abstract. Someone who had a before has something in, in mind to go back to and to work towards. Someone who hasn't had that, for example, you know, may not have ever had a relationship with someone that was intimate and warm and safe. So that for them will be an, abstra an abstraction, mm -hmm. right? So you've got to, in a sense, but they see other people. They'll say, you know, I see other people seem to feel better that like they they move towards other people when they're upset and they hold on to them i don't know why why do they do that mm. right and so they can develop a sense of um they can develop an idea of that and they can say well that might be one of our goals the goal 
the, you know, that our, one of our goals might be that you'll learn to feel that kind of attraction or tropism to someone and, you know, and want to be with them and find that being with someone actually feels better than not being with them. Right. But for those people, it's an abstraction. It's something that you have to kind of create. It's a narrative that gets built in a fantasy, in a sense, that slowly then you move with baby steps to, you know, move in that direction. And, and now this actually brings me thinking about basically the, so, the social brain and actually how we set the standards for each other. So inevitably, we, we need to see the behavior sometimes to believe that we can do it. So being immersed in, in a society, we can have a, um, an after when there was no before. So I'm curious, um, how do you use that potential of the social brain in the therapy room, if you at all? Well, when you say have an after, are you talking about um, you. other than relationships? Are you talking about like a different type of life, quality of life? Exactly, a different type of quality of life. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think those are the things that you kind of drop. You sort of drop those things towards the beginning of therapy as as questions, you know, have you ever, have you ever considered that life could, that you could spend a day and not be frightened? Have you ever thought about, you know, um, being with another person and feeling relaxed like you are when you're alone? You know, mm -hmm. um, many, many people who I work with, who are, you know, in, like who I work with as a, as a professional coach have been motivated their entire lives by being terrified of failure. And so then the question is, well, is it possible to be motivated by interest or curiosity, you know, or some or a positive emotion as opposed to a negative one? And it opens up those conversations. And then, you know, usually after you talk about those things for a number of months, clients start coming in and they say, you know, I had a little bit, I, I did this little thing that I didn't do because I was afraid, but I wanted to do it and I liked it. Is that what you're talking about? And then that becomes an island, you know, in the middle of their ocean of terror to say, okay, that's great. Let's do that again. Right. Like I, I had a client who's got, I think, six children, but he's gone through one marriage after another and he never gets loved the way he wants to be loved. Right. And when I first started seeing him, you know, he never talked about his children. He never talked about being interested, interested in them all. And um, I, you know, I said, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, have you ever considered that your children might be a source of love and joy for you? And he said, you know, he said, no, but that's not why I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you because I want I want a woman to love me. Right. And I said, well, all right. I, you know, I see that, but it could be, you know, and, and he was someone whose father didn't really enjoy him. His mother didn't really enjoy him. He didn't have a model for that. But then over time, I, you know, encouraged him. And now his best relationships are with his children. He's still upset that he doesn't have a woman. I mean, he's looking basically for a mother that he didn't have. And the, the odds of finding a mother that you didn't have when you're an adult are pretty slim. But he's not willing to give that up yet. And so in the meantime, I sort of just had my own agenda. And I had the agenda of encouraging him 
to to invest in the relationships with the children. And now what he'll tell me is, you know, you'll be so proud of me. And he'll say, you know, I took my son here, I took my daughter there, I just bought my other daughter a house. We're set, you know, we're closing, you know, and he gets all so much joy in that. And I'm waiting till they start having their own kids, and then I can start working on grandkids. That'll be fun. <laughs> Oh, yeah, so so actually that's that's uh, that's a thing uh, which I'm curious about trauma and and, and therapy. So uh, so trauma basically locks us in a certain worldview, and it's very difficult to be creative. So I feel like Tom trauma and creativity are very difficult to coexist. So uh, I'm curious uh, for people that maybe don't have the the necessary time money or anything for for therapy what can they do for themselves to to somehow increase that capacity to to see different avenues and to 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 kind of uh find new ways of of existing right well one of the one of the key neurobiological processes that occur in therapy is, is the, a neurodynamic process. Um, I, I believe that, I mean, there could be more, but I believe that we have three different executive systems. Mm. And so the amygdala is one executive system. And there's the, the second one is in our cortex, is in the parietal and, uh, and frontal lobes, which have to do with navigating space and time and abstract thinking and all of that. And then we have a third system, which is the default mode network, that is um, involved in daydreaming and imagination, creativity, um, also self-awareness and self-compassion, as well as empathy and compassion for other people. And the important thing to realize is that the amygdala is the most primitive executive and that it, it maintained veto power or inhibi inhibitory control over the other two systems. So when we become anxious, we become less intelligent, less creative, um, less uh, empathic for other people and less empathic for ourselves. We basically become a sort of terrified reptile. Mm. Right? And so I, I would think that the, the key thing that anyone can do would be, if they can, is to figure out some way to tame their amygdala, to become an amygdala whisperer and be able to decrease the, uh, that executive system so that the other two can be uninhibited. Now, for some people that might, you know, meditation or yoga might work, that they don't work for a lot of people. Some people need medi medication. Um, you know, other people need help, external help. Figure out, often lifestyle, um, lifestyle changes are necessary because depending on where you live, I mean, the world, the civilization, if you want to call it that, has gotten so far out ahead of what our minds and brains are able to process that we can live our entire life in the state of like uh, sort of frozen terror, mm. uh, being afraid we're going to miss this or miss that. And I think the Internet and social media has only made all of that worse. OK. Um, so I think that if, if, you're, if therapy isn't in the cards, if you can figure out some way to really develop a practice or a discipline of, of being calm, of regulating your heartbeat, of, of building your internal world, then you have an option of, of unleashing 
your your creativity, your intellect, your self-compassion, and also your empathy for other people. And, and also there, um, we are talking about meditation, yoga, and these practices, they seem to be very um, magical in a way. They seem to work on things we don't understand and we don't want to understand and they're holistic and all these buzzwords that are used around it. Um, and I love yoga and I love meditation and do them myself, but I somehow always understand that behind all of that is kind of reconditioning of our nervous system. Um, and I'm curious, um, what do you think is behind those practices that actually helps us self-regulate and work on trauma? Automatic regulation. See, but that's not going to sell a lot of books. Right? I know exactly. That's to, why we are talking tonight. <laughs> yeah, you have to. You have to. You know, you have to put it in magical terms to make people think they're connecting with the Godhead or they're. They're, they've got some mystical kundalini that goes from the earth through their spinal cords into the sun. I mean, all of that stuff is fine if that's what works for you, but it's really just, it's really fundamental stuff. You know, we, we like, we really love fantasy and science fiction, but it really is autonomic arousal. Yeah. And, you know, you can put whatever else on it you want if it makes you happy, but it's not that complicated. Exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to touch upon, that sometimes it feels that it's not that complicated. And right. uh, using all this complexity, we, we somehow, I feel like, um, take away from our healing process. Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and when I'm saying the word healing, when we talk about trauma, that's the word that is very often used in conjunction so what do you think healing means or not what do you think what do you what is your conception of healing in terms of psychotherapy and in terms of what happens to the brain and to the body well i think the you know i talked about this in my first book and the neuroscience of psychotherapy is that you know mental distress is a result of different systems in the brain perhaps not developing and then different systems in the brain not associating or communicating with each other. So I think there's a, you know, integration is the key term, balance is a key term um, as far as our brains are concerned. And then we have to integrate, you know, we have to integrate our brains. We have to integrate our, our psychology or experience of ourselves that we're not, we're not the super child that you know, perhaps we thought we were when we were kids, we're just another bozo on the bus of life trying to get through the day. That's really helpful, like just accepting your humanity. So there, you know, there's that piece of it um, that, you know, you know, you can you can accept some sort of belief about your place in the world or your role in, in eternity and all of that stuff. But all of those things are man made and, you know, they're basically there to make us feel better and to help us deal with death and not being special and all of that. Um, yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's all of that and it's, and it's connecting with other people. You know, we, we really, most of us anyway, of course there's diversity in this, but I think for most of us, our job is to be born and have babies and then die. Right. And so I think having babies is a good thing for most of us. 
And if you don't have your own baby, spend time with babies of other people because they could probably use the help, right? And it's just, and try to find it. If your family is pathological or you can't stand your family, you have to make your own family or you make a family of friends, right? Um, and of course, there are people that want to live alone on mountains, but that usually is an exception. And, um, you know, people that, that like to hang out with other people and tell a lot of jokes and drink some good wine, they tend to live longer and are happier and healthier. Hmm. Right. And so, yeah, I think you got you, you have to sort of stop thinking every it's so special and just get with the program. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm also thinking about just the regular exercise. It feels like you won't get a six pack un unless you get on with the program. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, you're my age. You're happy to have a keg. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually curious about um, trauma and the unconscious and why trauma sometimes um, repeats itself. And what is it that happens to our bodies and our brain which leads us to those cycles of trauma are you talking about like repetition compulsion that mm -hmm. yeah? okay well i mean i think the um you know freud's notion of rep repetition compulsion as i understood it i understand it is that there is this some um, he i think he talked about this notion of we want to heal so what we do is we keep going back to the scene of the crime and recreating it for the opportunity of healing um, but that doesn't, I don't believe that anymore. Um, I think that was, you know, that was, uh, an early idea. I, I think really what happens is our brains either during development or later in life, our brains are, are, are shaped by trauma to survive in traumatic situations. And so what I think we do is we either seek out or we create the trauma because that's where our brains feel most at home. Mm -hmm. For people that have been traumatized, um, they, they are often completely, completely overwhelmed when things are safe and calm because they're always waiting for the, you know, for the monster to come around the corner or for the other shoe to drop or whatever. So I find that they often, I've had clients like this, they create all sorts of relationships troubles, financial problems, and all of that, it would be, you know, you look at their lives on paper, it would be so easy for them to have a calm life. But being calm terrifies them, because they don't have a brain that's adapted to that kind of life. So I think what looks like repetition compulsion from Freud's perspective, really is just our brain trying to create the world in which it's adapted to survive it. Yeah, wow, that that's very nicely put. And it's almost like just that's how we are conditioned is what I understand from your words is we are conditioned to more than that. Yeah, please tell me more. <laughs> I mean, conditioned makes it sound like it's just reflexive behavioral, you know, reactions to stimulus. But in therapy, you see, it's much more than that because people do a lot to to um, shape their worlds mm -hmm. into the continuing traumatic environment that they're in. It's not a passive process. It's an active process. Okay. So I don't say it's not what you're saying, I think is not untrue, 
but it underrepresents the degree to which are we're, that we're capable of recreating hell over and over again for ourselves. And in in terms of that recreation of hell, it's sometimes when when we become aware we have done that, it becomes really overwhelming. It becomes almost like I'm doing this to myself. So it's almost brings a lot of self-punishment and, and a lot of doubt and also doubt in the capability you will be able to stop doing that. So I'm curious in the sense when, when people think about this, how can they somehow take away a little bit of the responsibility? I mean, we are always responsible to take our lives in charge, but sometimes I feel putting too much of that responsibility can be also counterproductive. So I'm curious, how do you work with this in a, in a therapy room? Well, I think, you know, thinking about responsibility um, and may, I think maybe self-blame is more, you know, is more what, what I see. And it's true, you know, you are, people do recreate it. However, I think when you, when you um, educate people about how their brains work mm -hmm. and how the unconscious works and the fact that this wasn't a conscious, they don't make con a conscious decision to do it. Often what people say is that, why didn't I see the signs? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, usually in repetitive, abusive relationships or, or failure in relationships or whatever. And it's like, well, it's, you know, the, you did see the signs, but your brain believes that you need that type of person in your life to be safe because those are the types of people you're used to dealing with, right? And so one of the things that I tell, uh, I tell many of my clients is, listen, we don't know what the right thing for you to do is right now, but we know the wrong thing to do. So I don't, I don't expect you to do the right thing, but what I want you to do at the very least is not do the wrong thing, right? So the next time, you know, a woman approaches you who wants to go out with you and they have a wedding ring on, say no <laughs> right or if you're married right the next time you see an attractive woman and you feel like you want to go out with her say no that you're married remind yourself you're married and don't do it right well and whatever to whatever um sort of addiction you have to the flirtation or the seduction or whatever's going on that's ruining your life let's deal with those feelings sit with those feelings and bring those to therapy and let's work with those. So don't act out, act in, right? Come, in, come into therapy, come with those feelings. Um, and I think over time, we'll, you'll figure out what the right thing to do is, but many times in life, you only know the wrong thing. So you got to stop doing that first. And, and <laughs> I really like the acting part. So, so, um, Touching there is um, the difficulty obviously comes when we are overwhelmed with a feeling and it's difficult to slow down the process. It's difficult to slow down and, and come to that awareness. So I'm, I'm curious, um, especially in today's day and age where everything is really fast and we are somehow made to, to make these fast decisions all the time um 
how do you practice and maybe how do you teach um, people to 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 have that space between the stimulus and response well i think the where we start usually where i start where clients start is that you realize that you've made the same mistake again two months ago <laughs> right and now you're paying the price for the mistake and i think the more you focus on it the more you talk about it the more you understand what you're doing the latency between when you make the mistake and when you become conscious of the mistake continues to decrease so my first the first goal is to keep decreasing that latency to the point where people can see it the next day mm. or a few hours after they after they've made the mistake or then while they're making the mistake right because as you associate consciousness right as opposed to dissociate consciousness the different neural systems the different executives can integrate and cross communicate in real time as opposed to retro in retrospect mm. right so then what you're doing then is then you know a goal would be okay you're doing this you know you're going to the liquor store or you're picking up the wrong guy or you're spending money you don't have whatever it is the goal then is to be is to realize you're doing it while you're doing it so you're doing simultaneously you're do, you're engaging in bad judgment as you do it so, this is really screwed up what i'm doing right now <laughs> right and so then once you once you get there right then you've got the opportunity to have internal integration and make different decisions right because you're doing it in real time right and then that's and then that's a different kind of work and again it's all about the increasing consciousness and awareness of what's going on but also you know i'm about to buy i'm about to buy this fancy car i already have a car at home but it's making me it's giving me a little shot of adrenaline or or uh, serotonin now it's making me feel good and i realize i'm depressed i'm i'm buying this car because i'm depressed right or i'm picking up this guy because i'm depressed or i'm lonely or whatever i'm anxious all right well now let's look at those feelings and let's unpack those feelings and get to the bottom of those things and start figuring out ways to understand and deal with and maybe cope with those feelings in a non-destructive way and 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 i i like i like that the shortening of of the um, uh, between the recognizing the behavior and and the behavior itself so i'm i'm curious um it seems that we there is something which we call negative behavior in this context which is a, is a consequence of trauma um and i'm curious um, how do we recognize what's negative behavior in our lives? Uh, because it, it can be something that looks positive for one person can be completely negative for another. So I'm curious, um, how do you help people to, to do that? Well, I mean, usually they, people come to therapy because something in their life isn't working. Hmm. So people can be fairly pathological but depending on their life situation, it may not cause them a problem. Yeah. Right. Like, for example, I had a client who spent, he was spending half a million dollars a year 
buying things on Amazon because every day he wanted to have a few packages. It was like Christmas for him every day, right? So he would order multiple things every day because he never wanted to come home from work without having presents on the doorstep, right? So for him, spending a half a million dollars a year on things, right, on, you know, whatever, books and music and what and antiques, um, for him, it wasn't a problem financially because he made a lot of money. And so that for him, was a, it was a problem because there was no more room in his house, <laughs> but it wasn't a problem financially. But for me, if I did that, that would be a huge problem, right? And so if I went to therapy, I would say, listen, I have this compulsive shopping problem, right? And I, I'm living on the street because I, don't, I can't pay my rent anymore because Amazon has all my money. That's not what his complaining, you know, his presenting problem was. His presenting problem was that, you know, marital difficulties and extramarital affairs and, you know, um, drugs and all kinds of other things. So the real issue for him wasn't that particular behavior. It was the fact that he was depressed and miserable, right? And so the shopping was a symptom, was a, was a spinoff of the core symptom of depression. Because whenever he got a package, he got a little bit of a shot of adrenaline, maybe a little bit of serotonin, right? Yeah, and yeah. It's sort of a funny example, but I mean, it's the same process you know, if you if you've been if you've been traumatized and you engage in in cutting, or if you are involved in 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 uh, you know self-destructive relationships or other self-destructive behavior, they're triggered by some emotion, right? And if you're not dealing with the emotion, all you've got is the acting out. And so that's also something uh, talking about the presenting problem and when someone realizes that they might be or might not be traumatized or needing help. Um, when, when do we need help? Um, and why do we sometimes come to help only when, forgive my language, shit hits the fan? <laughs> and how can we maybe correct that in, 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 in the increasing self-awareness of the species? Let's say it like this. Well, I mean, I think it, it's sort of um, it's sort of part of our egotism, our narcissism, to think that we can handle things on our own. So that's a big, I think that's a big uh, roadblock to therapy. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is that people are terrified of going to therapy because everybody, everybody at one time or other, I think you can hear the wolves howling in the back of your mind right you know there are things that you're repressing or running away from or distracting keeping yourself busy so that they don't pain trauma dissociation all of that stuff um and so there's a lot of motivation to avoid looking at it and there's a lot of motivation to avoid feeling you need help with it so i think those are the two you know key variables and then of course that's that's woven into all sorts of different culture cultural things. Well, if you go to therapy, you're crazy. You know, mo you know, that means you're really mentally ill, you should be in a hospital. Um, so there's layer upon layer of, of internal things, social things, financial things, you know, you name it. So there's many more reasons not to go to therapy than there are to go. Um, but 
the reason to go usually is because you're suffering and you've only got one life and it would be good to not spend so much of it suffering. And uh, and also you, you are talking a lot about the, the image of therapy and therefore the image of trauma, something really negative and something that you are crazy or, um, and that language around trauma also probably uh, kind of masks and, and stops us from getting help. So, so I'm, I'm, I don't know if you see changes in the US um, because for me, it's something that at this stage is maybe most developed or most therapies somehow most, um, um, it's, it's not a taboo anymore. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering whether with these changes um, in the culture, things are just becoming easier to access or it's not your experience. And if well, not. I've only lived in large liberal cities my whole life. I've lived in New York and Boston and Los Angeles. And I would say that in those three cities over time, the stigma of therapy has decreased. And in fact, like in, you know, in, in, in sort of the middle and upper income areas of LA, everybody has, their, has a therapist, right? It's sort of, oh, it's almost like a, a rite of passage socially. I just got a referral the other day from a client who's been seeing his his therapist for the last 45 years. <laughs> right. And so I'm next. Right. And so, um, yeah, but I would think that, you know, there really are at least two Americas and the other half of America, uh, you know, the other the other uh, you know part of America really lives in the 1930s or 1940s socially, culturally, religiously, and all of that. So you really can't talk about the US. And I suspect that's true in England, you know, and I suspect that's true in your country, you know, or your country as well, all of every country. Yeah. And, that way. and talking about trauma and basically transgenerational trauma, uh, I, I often said uh, to my therapist that I, I feel like I have lived four generations. I had to speed up to reach to the point where I'm now to be actually <laughs> able to live in a society that's so far away from my, from my original culture. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, how does this transgenerational trauma keeps us in the past? Uh, and how, how difficult or, or how how can we maybe help ourselves to to understand that we are living 50 years back and not in the present day and age well i think if you you know if you accept the premise of a social brain you have to you have to accept both uh, both horizontally that we're connected with each other and also vertically in time is that we're also connected with our grandparents and our great grandparents. And just like other mammals, we inherit, you know, our, like the analysts say, our first reality is our mother's unconscious, mm -hmm. right? And if you think about that as a mechanism of transition or, or um, transfer from one generation or another, where do you draw the line between your experience and the experiences of five or 10 generations ago? I mean, it just, it passes down and it might change or alter over time. And certainly you learn new languages, new ways of being, do you dress differently? You know, there's all of these things that are different as you move from culture to culture. 
but the emotional the emotional weight of your cultural history go i would bet goes back many many generations and you can you know you can uh you can uh, take the boy out of italy but you can't take the italy out of the boy right so all of the generations of my ancestors in southern italy trying to scrape a living out of you know out of rocks i'm i suspect influences me in you know my sense of 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 uh whatever uh, i don't know if paranoia is the right word but i i always expect that something bad like i always expect something bad is going to happen and when i think about italian history in the south for the last thousand years something bad always did happen so how much of that is my personality and how much of it is my genetic history we don't know yet right we really don't understand that but it certainly makes sense I've worked with a lot of Holocaust survivors, second generation, third generation, um, survivors of the Armenian Holocaust. It doesn't go away. It just gets passed down. And, and that's also something that uh, where I feel uh, compassion and we, you talked about self-compassion and how that's affected by trauma. Um, and, and I'm curious how, so biologically, um, what's the underpinning of the of this trauma trauma inheritance that that we are seeing? So, um, what is it that we can biologically kind of work on? Which systems are we working on in order to kind of help ourselves to to tackle this unconscious? Mm -hmm. Well, again, I would go back, I would go back to this primitive systems of fear and safety and arousal. Yeah. So I think it, you know, bottom up is the way to go. It's, you know, somatic bodily awareness, um, imagination, learning about your culture, learning about your history, and not to not to sort of make a cartoon out of it, right? Because it doesn't explain everything. And it doesn't, for some people, it doesn't really seem to even make a sense. You really have to be open to it as one of the many aspects of who you are mm -hmm. and filtering that in. It's always, it's always a little unnerving when someone discovers some idea about themselves and everything gets reduced to that, oh, yeah. right? It's the same thing with trauma. People learn about trauma and they go, oh my God, everything I do is a function of my trauma. It's like, you know, no. You know, no, not everything, you, everything you do is a function of everything you've experienced. Trauma might have been important, right? But it's, it's a part of you, you know, and a lot of, and because we have minds and because we can, we have imagination and because we can write stories, we can become a lot of different things. You know, part of this is up to you. Yes. I mean, I guess trauma locks us in a place where we can only see that space and we cannot see right. the abundance of us or the environment. Right. Therefore, right. it is easy to identify only with that with that event or um, and like I said, you know, we become a frightened reptile. Yes, we don't have a, we don't have a cortex. We don't have relationships. What we have is vigilance to the environment. Yep. And um, I'm also curious, uh, just to go a little bit towards the wrapping up, coming back to, to compassion towards oneself and to just being human. 
and mm -hmm. just being inhabiting a body and 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 inhabiting this like using the brain as an interface to relate to the world um uh, i remember you said once we can only just have the rough edges polished we cannot have the perfection even in healing yeah. so i'm curious in terms of um healing trauma how don't we how we kind of deal with it to the level that is necessary but not overindulge if if you know what i mean and then just search for being completely healed yeah well i mean i i go back i go back to freud's wisdom and he said you know the and he was the one that talked about that uh, you know uh, he, he wrote a paper called therapy terminable and interminable right and it's uh you know he said the goal of therapy is to be able to love and work right and so if you can love and work you might want to consider not needing therapy um so but that's one definition of therapy some people use therapy for the purpose of you know regulating or if if they've got deficits they need someone to bounce off of they're isolated they have problems. I have clients who have had bipolar disorder for 50 years. And so they need someone to talk to once or twice a week to check in on them because they don't have the self-reflective capacity to know that they're becoming manic or becoming depressed, mm -hmm. right? So therapy, there's a lot of different forms of therapy. So it really, I think the answer to the question really relies on what is it, are you in therapy for? But I've, you know, I've, I've kicked people out of therapy because they come in thinking, oh, like, oh, I've got to find more things wrong with me. And I'll say, listen, you know, you've got, you know, I, I, it was funny because the, the, the a person that I did this to, he wrote an article for the Los Angeles Times that his therapist threw him out of therapy. So I actually got to read about his perspective of my throwing him out of therapy. And I threw him out of therapy because he was doing fine. He lived in a nice place. He had this girlfriend that was just crazy about him and seemed like a wonderful person. He had plenty of money. He had good good relationship with his children who loved him. And, you know, no, you don't need to be, get out there, go do something, you know? Go buy a motorcycle or, or like, go do some, do some parachuting, get out of here, right? So, but he really appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, that that's actually beautiful because again, we come down to diversity. So it okay. will have, there will be people that will need uh, constant support even for 40 years and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then there will be people that might just need to be told, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so the last question uh, I have uh, is, um, for example, knowledge um, is a big thing for me uh, in, in, in the process of liberation. Um, yet somehow it seems to be very difficult to um, absorb new knowledge or seek for new knowledge when, when we are traumatized. And there is so much of it today, uh, yet somehow we, we are trapped in that scarcity mentality um, uh, not having enough information. So I'm, I'm curious, um, how do we expand that view and, and, and get to that information that's actually 
not going to re-traumatize us because a lot of people that are seeking healing, they would go to astrologer or to um, a healer, whatever that would entail, and then maybe not get the help they need. So I'm, I'm curious, it's, it's also actually, I'm, I'm, I'm now digressing, but it's our job as potentially therapists to, to, to talk about this. So, so I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I mean, I, Yeah, I mean, it's people are people are only going to be able to understand what they can understand. And for many people, astrology is something that they can grasp. Right. For other people, um, you know, I, I've heard people say if, if you're if you're stressed or if you're depressed or if you're terrified, you know, um, go to church and, you know, find Jesus or, you know, whatever it is. Different things are going to be work are going to work for different people. Psychotherapy is probably not helpful to the majority of people in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Because the uh, it's a wrong metaphor. Um, in collectivist societies, individual psychotherapy it's a very difficult translation, except for a relatively small subsection of the population. And so it's important not to think of therapy as the sort of the be all and end all for everybody. It's just, um, you know, I think it's a it's a phenomena of Western culture that is maybe it's it's a um, it's a natural it's a natural sort of evolution from witch doctors and and, you know, wise uncles and, and aunts. When you develop an industrial technological society, you professionalize it and make people pay for it, you know, but um, every, you know, things work differently for different people. So to me I, I for sometimes with kids when i when i get referrals to kids and adolescents it's like the last thing they need to do is sit with me in a therapy office and i'll talk to the you know that it would be much better for this child to be in martial arts with a good uh, with a good sensei or it'd be much better for this girl to take a ballet class and to get used to her body and feel her body and develop her self-esteem and so you know even therapy itself you have to figure out is it right for this person is it right at this time in their life? I mean, it's just one of many options. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a name of a movie uh, of Woody Allen, which is called Whatever Works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like, yeah, sometimes it's, it's just whatever works and it, as long as it works, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also thinking of Woody Allen, you know, he says um, in, in one of his movies says, I think he said uh, it was his brother. His brother thinks he's a chicken, right? <laughs> And someone asked him, "Why are you going to send him to therapy?" And Woody, and Woody said, "Well, we would, but we need the eggs." <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, there is one more question I want to ask. I knew it. I knew there'd be one more question. <laughs> because there, there, in one of your books, you are talking about the patient that uh, thinks is impregnated by a cat. Uh, and uh, and that you tried really to make her understand and take tests and and at the end you kind of thought uh, oh maybe the best solution would just to go with her and get a cat for her and what made me think there is actually why is it that sometimes we really need someone's reality to match ours because as soon as you would 
kind of get at the level of that reality, you would know what would be helpful. But somehow there is a part of us who really wants this reality to match what we are experiencing, almost as if that doesn't happen, right. we, we cannot live with that. So, so I'm curious in terms of whatever works in therapy and trauma, um, how do you think about this? Oh, I mean, I, I kind of regret the, the um, it was, it certainly has been helpful for me for the years that I spent working with psychotic clients because I didn't have the luxury of them understanding my perspective. I had to constantly move into their world and understand the world from their perspective. And it was only once I found common ground that I could figure out some way to be of assistance. And I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who's psychotic out of their belief system. Mm -hmm. the, the best I've done is get them to, you know, um, cohere to medit uh, medication, um you know have better relationships with their families or, or whatever i could do but I, I you can't talk someone out of their beliefs beliefs are too significant mm. you know that's why you know i mean that's really what's happening in the united states now you have two different you have half the population who has one belief set one reality and another that has another so it's really interesting i mean we're kind of moving to the same state we had during the civil war Right? Is that what he, the problem is it's hard to fight a war when everybody's everywhere. There's no line that divides us now. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. There can be miniature civil wars. Right. Okay. Well, uh, I would stop here and I would ask again is there a question around trauma uh, that you would ask yourself, which I have not covered, so that we can finish? Well, the only thing that I would I would say is I'm I don't think trauma is I don't think anyone would choose to be traumatized. But what I've experienced is that a lot of incredibly meaningful things have emerged and been motivated by people dealing with trauma. So I would imagine my, my guess is that trauma itself, which we label as being so bad, is actually part of biodiversity. And because I think things, you know, surviving extreme conditions result in changes in people that lead to extraordinary things. And so I, the last thing I would say is that don't, don't completely pathologize the pathology. You know, be open to the fact that it may well serve some purpose for us. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, on that note, I, I actually really like to end because um, I feel it's, it's just being human and, and just taking it as is and not trying to change as much, just as you said, just rough edges. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, I enjoy it every time. So I hope we will have next uh, session on attachment. <laughs> All right. Sounds good.